0: Chapter 12 of A Small Boy and Others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by MB. A Small Boy and Others by Henry James. Chapter 12. I turn round again to where I last left myself gaping at the old rickety billboard in Fifth Avenue, and am almost as sharply aware as ever of the main source of its spell the fact that it most often blazed with the rich appeal of Mr. Barnum, whose lecture-room, attached to the great American museum, overflowed into posters of all the theatrical bravery disavowed by its title. It was my rueful theory of those days, though tasteful I may call it too, as well as rueful, that on all the holidays on which we weren't dragged to the dentists, we attended as a matter of course at Barnum's, that is, when we were so happy as to be able to, which, to my own particular consciousness, wasn't every time the case. The case was too often, to my melancholy view, that w j quite regularly, on the non dental Saturdays, repaired to this seat of joy with the easy Albert, he at home there and master of the scene to a degree at which, somehow, neither of us could at the best arrive. He quite moulded, truly, in those years of plasticity, as to the aesthetic bent and the determination of curiosity I seem to make out, by the general Barnum association and revelation. It was not, I hasten to add, that I too didn't, to the extent of my minor chance, drink at the spring, for how else should I have come by the whole undimmed sense of the connection? the weary waiting in the dusty halls of humbug amid bottled mermaids bearded ladies and chill dioramas for the lecture-room the true centre of the seat of joy to open vivid in especial to me is my almost sick wondering of whether i mightn't be rapt away before it did open the impression appears to have been mixed the drinking deep and the holding out holding out in particular against failure of food and of stage fares, provision for transport to and fro, being questions equally intense. The appeal of the lecture-room, in its essence a heavy extra, so exhausted our resources that even the sustaining doughnut of the refreshment counter would mock our desire and the long homeward crawl, the length of Broadway and further, seemed to defy repetition those desperate days, nonetheless, affect me now as having flashed with the very complexion of romance. Their aches and inanitions were part of the adventure. The homeward straggle, interminable as it appeared, flowered at moments into rapt contemplations. That, for instance, of the painted portrait, large as life, of the celebrity of the hour, then dancing at the Broadway theatre, Lola Montez, countess of Lansfeldt, of a dazzling and unreal beauty, and in a riding habit lavishly open at the throat. It was thus quite in order that I should pour longest, there at my fondest corner, over the Barnum announcements, my present inability to be superficial about which has given, in fact, the measure of my contemporary care. These announcements must have been in their way marvels of attractive composition, the placard bristling from top to toe with its analytic synopsis of scenery and events. The synoptical view cast its net of fine meshes, and the very words savoured of incantation. It is odd at the same time that, when I question memory as to the living hours themselves, those of the stuffed and dim little hall of the audience, "'smelling of peppermint and orange-peel, "'where the curtain rose on our gasping but rewarded patience. two performances only stand out for me, "'though these in the highest relief. "'Love, or The Countess and the Surf, "'by J. Sheridan Knowles. "'I see that still as the blazonry of one of them, "'just as I see Miss Emily Mestayer, "'large, red in face, Quaffed in a tangle of small, fine, damp-looking short curls and clad in a light blue garment edged with swans-down, shout at the top of her lungs that a pureurs of gold would be the fair guerdon of the minion who should start on the spot to do her bidding at some desperate crisis that I forget. I forget Ouan the serf whom I yet recall immensely admiring for his nobleness. I forget every one but Miss Mestair, who gave form to my conception of the tragic actress at her highest. She had a hooked nose, a great play of nostril, a vast protuberance of bosom, and always the crop of close, moist ringlets. I say always, for I was to see her often again, during a much later phase the midmost years of that boston museum which aimed at so vastly higher a distinction than the exploded lecture-room had really done though in an age that snickered even abnormally low it still lacked the courage to call itself a theatre she must have been in comedy which i believe she also usefully and fearlessly practised rather unimaginable but there was no one like her in the boston time for cursing queens and eagle-beaked mothers. The Shakespeare of the booths and other such would have been unproducible without her. She had a rusty, rasping, heaving and tossing authority, of which the bitterness is still in my ears. I am revisited by an outer glimpse of her in that after age, when she had come, comparatively speaking, into her own. The sight of her accidentally incurred one tremendously hot summer night, as she slowly moved from her lodgings, or wherever, in the high Baudouin Street region, down to the not-distant theatre from which even the temperature had given her no reprieve. And well remember how, the queer light of my young impression playing up again in her path, she struck me as the very image of mere sore histrionic habit and use a worn and weary, a battered even though almost sordidly smoothed, thing of the theatre, very much as an old infinitely handled and greasy violoncello of the orchestra might have been. It was but an effect, doubtless of the heat, that she scarcely seemed clad at all. Slippered, shuffling, and, though somehow hatted and vaguely veiled or streamered, Wrapped in a gauzy sketch of a dressing-gown, she pointed to my extravagant attention the moral of thankless personal service, of the reverse of the picture, of the cost of amusing the public, in a case of amusing it, as who should say, every hour. And I had thrilled before her as the countess, in love, such contrasted combinations, but she carried her head very high, as with the habit of crowns and trains and tirades, had in fact much the air of some deposed and reduced sovereign living on a scant allowance, so that all invisibly and compassionately, I took off my hat to her, to which I must add the other of my two Barnamite scenic memories my having anciently admired her as the Eliza of Uncle Tom's cabin, her swelling bust encased in a neat cotton gown, and her flight across the ice-blocks of the Ohio, if I rightly remember the perilous stream, intrepidly and gracefully performed. We lived at that time, with great intensity, in Mrs. Stowe's novel, which, recalling my prompt and charmed acquaintance with it, I should perhaps substitute for the initials, earlier mentioned here as my first experiment in grown-up fiction. There was, however, I think, for that triumphant work no classified condition. It was for no sort of reader as distinct from any other sort, save indeed for northern as differing from southern. It knew the large felicity of gathering in alike The small and the simple and the big and the wise, and had above all the extraordinary fortune of finding itself, for an immense number of people, much less a book than a state of vision, of feeling and of consciousness, in which they didn't sit and read and appraise and pass the time, but walked and talked and laughed and cried, and, in a manner of which Mrs. Stowe was the irresistible cause, generally conducted themselves. Appreciation and judgment, the whole impression, were thus an effect for which there had been no process. Any process so related, having in other cases had to be at some point or other critical. Nothing in the guise of a written book, therefore, a book printed, published, sold, bought, and noticed, probably ever reached its mark, the mark of exciting interest, without having at least groped for that goal as a book, or by the exposure of some literary side. Letters, here, languished unconscious, and Uncle Tom, instead of making even one of the cheap shortcuts through the medium in which books breathe, even as fishes in water, went gaily round about it altogether, as if a fish, a wonderful leaping fish, had simply flown through the air this feat accomplished the surprising creature could naturally fly anywhere and one of the first things it did was thus to flutter down on every stage literally without exception in america and europe if the amount of life represented in such a work is measurable by the ease with which representation is taken up and carried further carried even violently furthest the fate of mrs stowe's picture was conclusive it simply sat down wherever it lighted and made itself so to speak at home thither multitudes flocked afresh and there in each case it rose to its height again and went with all its vivacity and good faith through all its motions these latter were to leave me however with a fonder vision still than that of the comparatively jejune lecture-room version. For the first exhibition of them to spring to the front was the fine free rendering achieved at a playhouse, till then ignored by fashion and culture, the National Theatre, deep down on the east side, whence echoes had come faintest to ears polite, but where a sincerity vivid though rude was now supposed to reward the curious. Our numerous attendance there under this spell was my first experience of the theatre party, as we have enjoyed it in our time. Each emotion and impression of which is as fresh to me as the most recent of the same family. Precious through all, indeed, perhaps, is the sense strange only to later sophistication, of my small encouraged state as a free playgoer, a state doubly wondrous when I thus evoke the full contingent from Union Square, where, for that matter, I think, the wild evening must have been planned. I am lost again in all the good nature from which small boys on wild evenings could dangle so unchidden since the state of unchiddenness is what comes back to me well-nigh clearest. How without that complacency of conscience could every felt impression so live again? It is true that for my present sense of the matter snubs and raps would still tingle, would count double. Just wherefore it is exactly, however, that I mirror myself in these depths of propriety. The social scheme, as we knew it, was, in its careless charity, worthy of the golden age. Though I can't sufficiently repeat that we knew it both at its easiest and its safest, the fruits dropped right upon the board to which we flocked, together, the least of us and the greatest, with differences of appetite and of reach, doubtless, but not with differences of place and of proportionate share. My appetite and my reach in respect to the more full-bodied Uncle Tom might have brooked certainly any comparison. I must have partaken thoroughly of the feast to have left the various aftertastes so separate and so strong. It was a great thing to have a canon to judge by. It helped conscious criticism, which was to fit on wings— for use ever after to the shoulders of appreciation. In the light of that advantage I could be sure my second Eliza was less dramatic than my first, and that my first Cassie, that of the great and blood-curdling Mrs. Bellamy of the lecture-room, touched depths which made the lady at the National prosaic and placid. I could already be down on a placid Cassie. Just as, on the other hand, the rocking of the ice-floes of the Ohio, with the desperate Eliza, infant in arms, balancing for a leap from one to the other, had here less of the audible creak of carpentry, emulated a little more, to my perception, the real water of Mr. Crummles's pump. They can't, even at that age, have emulated it much, and one almost envies— quite making up one's mind not to denounce, the simple faith of an age beguiled by arts so rude. However, the point exactly was that we attended this spectacle just in order not to be beguiled, just in order to enjoy with ironic detachment, and, at the very most, to be amused ourselves at our sensibility should it prove to have been trapped and caught, To have become thus aware of our collective attitude constituted for one small spectator at least a great initiation. He got his first glimpse of that possibility of a free play of mind over a subject which was to throw him with force at a later stage of culture, when subjects had considerably multiplied into the critical arms of Matthew Arnold so he is himself at least interested in seeing the matter, as a progress in which the first step was taken, before that crude scenic appeal, by his wondering among his companions, where the absurd, the absurd for them, ended, and the fun, the real fun, which was the gravity, the tragedy, the drollery, the beauty, the thing itself, briefly, might be legitimately and tastefully held to begin. Uncanny though the remark, perhaps, I am not sure I wasn't thus more interested in the pulse of our party under my tiny recording thumb than in the beat of the drama and the shock of its opposed forces, vivid and touching as the contrast was then found, for instance, between the tragicomical Topsy the slave-girl clad in a pinafore of sackcloth and destined to become, for Anglo-Saxon millions, the type of the absolute in the artless, and her little mistress, the blonde Ava, a figure rather in the Kenwigs tradition of pantalettes and pigtails, whom I recall as perching quite suicidally, with her elbows out and a preliminary shriek, on that bulwark of the Mississippi steamboat, which was to facilitate her all but fatal immersion in the flood. Why should I have duly noted that no little game on her part could well less have resembled or simulated an accident, and yet have been no less moved by her reappearance, rescued from the river but perfectly dry, in the arms of faithful Tom, who had plunged in to save her, without either so much as wetting his shoes, "'than if I had been engaged with her in a reckless romp. "'I could count the white stitches on the loose patchwork, "'and yet could take it for a story rich and harmonious. "'I could know we had all intellectually condescended, "'and that we had yet had the thrill of an aesthetic adventure, "'and this was a brave beginning for a consciousness "'that was to be nothing if not mixed.' and a curiosity that was to be nothing if not restless. The principle of this prolonged arrest, which I insist on prolonging a little further, is doubtless in my instinct to grope for our earliest aesthetic seeds. Careless at once, and generous, the hands by which they were sown, but practically appointed, nonetheless, to cause that peculiarly flurried hair to run, flurried because over ground so little native to it, when so many others held back. Is it that air of romance that gilds for me then the Barnum background? Taking it as a symbol? That makes me to resist, to this effect of a passionate adverse loyalty, any impulse to translate into harsh terms any old sordidities and poverties? The great American Museum— the downtown scenery and aspects at large, and even the uptown improvements on them, as then flourishing? Why, they must have been for the most part of the last meanness. The Barnum picture above all ignoble and awful, its blatant face or frame stuck about with innumerable flags that waved, poor vulgar-sized ensigns, over spurious relics and catchpenny monsters in effigy to say nothing of the promise within, of the still more monstrous and abnormal living, from the total impression of which things we plucked, somehow, the flower of the ideal. It grew, I must in justice proceed, much more sweetly and naturally at Niblo's, which represented in our scheme the ideal evening, while Barnum figured the ideal day, so that I ask myself, with that sense of our resorting there under the rich cover of night, which was the supreme charm, how it comes that this larger memory hasn't swallowed up all the others. For here, absolutely, was the flower at its finest, and grown as nowhere else, grown in the great garden of the Ravel family, and offered again and again to our deep inhalation. I see the Ravelles. French acrobats, dancers, and pantomimists, as representing for our culture pure grace and charm and civility, so that one doubts whether any candid community was ever so much in debt to a race of entertainers, or had so happy and prolonged, so personal and grateful, a relation with them. They must have been, with their offshoots of Martinetti's and others, of three or four generations besides being of a rich theatrical stock, generally. And we had our particular friends and favourites among them. We seemed to follow them through every phase of their career, to assist at their tottering steps along the tightrope as very small children, kept in equilibrium by very big balancing-poles, caretakers here walking under in case of falls, to greet them as Madame Excel, of robust maturity and in a Spanish costume, bounding on the same tense chord more heavily but more assuredly, and finally to know the climax of the art with them in Raoul, or the Night Owl, and Jocko, or the Brazilian Ape, and all this in the course of our own brief infancy. My impression of them bristles so with memories, that we seem to have rallied to their different productions, with much the same regularity with which we formed fresh educational connections, and they were so much our property and our pride that they supported us handsomely through all fluttered entertainment of the occasional Albany cousins. I remember how when one of these visitors wound up, in honour of New York, to the very fever of perception broke out one evening while we waited for the curtain to rise oh don't you hear the cries they're beating them i'm sure they are can't it be stopped we resented the charge as a slur on our very honour for what our romantic relative had heatedly imagined to reach us in a hushed-up manner from behind was the sounds attendant on the application of blows to some acrobatic infant who had funked his little job impossible such horrors in the world of pure poetry opened out to us at niblo's a temple of illusion of tragedy and comedy and pathos that though it's a of stony-brown metropolitan hotel on the wrong side must have been bleak and vulgar flung its glamour forth into broadway what more pathetic the instance so that we publicly wept than the fate of wondrous martinetti who after befriending a hapless french family wrecked on the coast of brazil and bringing back to life a small boy rescued from the waves i see even now with every detail this inanimate victim supine on the strand met his death by some cruel bullet, of which I have forgotten the determinate cause, only remembering the final agony as something we could scarce bear, and a strain of our sensibility to which our parents repeatedly questioned the wisdom of exposing us. These performers and these things were in all probability but of a middling skill and splendor. It was the pre-trapeze age, and we were caught by mild marvels, even if a friendly good faith in them, something sweet and sympathetic, was, after all, a value, whether of their own humanity, their own special quality, or only of our innocence, never to be renewed. But I light this taper to the initiators, so to call them, whom I remembered, when we had left them behind, as if they had given us a silver key to carry off and so to refit, after long years, to sweet names never thought of from then till now. Signor Leon Giavelli, in whom the French and the Italian charm appear to have met, who was he, and what did he brilliantly do, and why of a sudden do I thus recall and admire him? I am afraid he but danced the tightrope, the most domestic of our friend's resources, as it brought them out, by the far stretch of the rope into the bosom of the house and against our very hearts, where they leapt and bounded and wavered and recovered closely face to face with us. But I dare say he bounded, brave Signor Leon, to the greatest height of all. Let this vague agility, in any case, connect him with that revelation of the ballet, the sentimental pastoral, of other years which, in The Four Lovers, for example, a pantomimic lesson as in words of one syllable, but all quick and gay and droll, would have affected us as classic, I am sure, had we then had at our disposal that term of appreciation. When we read in English story-books about the pantomimes in London, which somehow cropped up in them so often, those were the only things that didn't make us yearn. So much we felt we were masters of the type, and so almost sufficiently was that a stopgap for London constantly deferred. We hadn't the transformation scene, it was true, though what this really seemed to come to was clown and harlequin taking liberties with policemen, these last evidently a sharp note in a picturesqueness that we lacked our own slouchy officers, saying nothing to us of that sort. But we had at Niblo's Harlequin and Columbine, albeit of less pure a tradition. And we knew, moreover, all about clowns, for we went to circuses, too, and so repeatedly that when I add them to our list of recreations, the good old orthodox circuses under tents set up in vacant lots, with which New York appears at that time to have bristled, time and place would seem to have shrunken for most other pursuits and not least for that of serious learning and the case is aggravated as i remember franconi's which we more or less haunted and which aiming at the grander style and the monumental effect blazed with fresh paint and rang with roman chariot races up there among the deserts of twenty-ninth street or whatever considerably south perhaps but only a little east of the vaster desolations that gave scope to the crystal palace second of its name since following not passibus equus alas the london structure of eighteen fifty one this enterprise forestalled by a year or two the paris palais de l'industrie of eighteen fifty five such as it was i feel again its majesty on those occasions on which i dragged if I must here once more speak for myself only, after Albany Cousins through its courts of edification. I remember being very tired and cold and hungry there, in a little light drab and very glossy or shiny talma, breasted with rather troublesome buttonhole embroideries, though concomitantly conscious that I was somehow in Europe, since everything about me had been brought over, which ought to have been consoling, and seems in fact to have been so in some degree, inasmuch as both my own pain and the sense of the cousinly, the Albany, headaches quite fade in that recovered presence of big European art embodied in Thorwaldsen's enormous Christ and the Disciples, a shining marble company ranged in a semicircle of dark maroon walls if this was europe then europe was beautiful indeed and we rose to it on the wings of wonder never were we afterwards to see great showy sculpture in whatever profuse exhibition or of whatever period or school without some renewal of that charmed thorwaldsen hour some taste again of the almost sugary or confectionery sweetness with which the great white images had affected us under their supper-table gaslight. The Crystal Palace was vast and various and dense, which was what Europe was going to be. It was a deep-down jungle of impressions that were somehow challenges, even as we might, helplessly defied, find foreign words and practices, over which, formidably, towered kisses mounted Amazon, attacked by a leopard or whatever a work judged at that day sublime and the glory of the place, so that I felt the journey back in the autumn dusk and the 6th Avenue cars, established just in time, a relapse into soothing flatness, a return to the 14th Street horizon from a far journey, and a hundred looming questions that would still, tremendous thought, come up for all the personal answers of which one cultivated the seed. End of chapter 12